Welcome to Rarefied Thinking, a series of podcasts in which precision for medicine experts share their insights into the shifting rare disease clinical trial landscape. Rare disease trials in the age of COVID, the patient perspective. Rare disease trials are complex under the best of circumstances, and the coronavirus pandemic has only complicated things. In this podcast, Precision's Thijs Optewich, Director, Clinical Business Solutions, and Christy Clark, Senior Vice President, Project Management and Clinical Operations, explore the impact of decentralized operations on rare disease patients and which new approaches are likely to become the new normal after COVID. So, hi, Christy. Uh, this is this is Thijs uh, from Precision. Obviously, we know each other. Uh, could you maybe introduce yourself uh, real quick? Absolutely. Thank you, Thijs. Hi, this is Christy Clark, and I'm Senior Vice President of Project Management and Clinical Operations for Precision for Medicine. I've been in the industry for over 30 years, and I've spent the last 15 of those years specializing in rare disease studies. Thanks. And... Um, I've been involved in the rare disease space for, I think, almost nine or 10 years. And of those 10 years, I think almost eight of them, we've been working together in the in the rare disease industry, uh, running clinical studies and, and obviously learning a lot uh, about the rare disease space in general from a regulatory perspective and, and clinical perspective. So we both understand the challenging nature of these studies in the, in the rare disease niche in general. But to ask you the question, what additional level of complexity was added by the global pandemic and how does this affect the patient population that we, that we see in, in these uh, different indications in, in rare disease? Yeah, and you know, in rare disease, we're already doing quite a bit to lessen the patient burden through home health care visits or other decentralized trial efforts. But with the pandemic, it really caused us a burden and a scrambling to add these services, which cause immediate bandwidth issues, even for services that were already set up. So for example, we have home health care on many of our rare trials, and we needed to expand those services to um, adapt to increased assessments and things being done from home. But many of the home health care providers were stretched to their limits. So that's been one of the biggest challenges. Um, also, you know, now we're asking patients to receive their investigational product at their home. And so they have less interaction with their investigators in the face-to-face nature. Um, also, I would say that, you know, some studies really got very creative when this happened and they actually started flying investigators to their patients' homes to do assessments in order to have continuity in raters. So that was another area that was affected. Um, also, we had some trials that had to take a pause because some of their patients are too compromised. So for example, if they have um, lung disorders like PAH, for example, um, pulmonary arterial hypertension, it really wasn't safe for those patients to have someone come to their home or for them to go to the clinic. So um, those have been some of the biggest things that I've seen. And, And one other note is that even the sponsors have had to say, maybe we need to change our clinical endpoints and make the primary endpoint something that could be captured through either a wearable technology or some other um, decentralized effort. Okay, thanks. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So, did you see um, a big effect in the patient population uh, 
given the fact that this pandemic was hitting them hard, especially them, since they have such a, uh, a, um, a challenging physique uh, very often in these rare disease, uh, disease indications? Yeah, I think we did see that. Um, however, we did also realize that many of these rare diseases don't have a treatment. And so even during the pandemic, we were finding that parents and patients were very eager to get to the clinic to enroll in clinical trials. So we could see this on one of our RET studies um, that we're running. The parents did not want to give up and <laughs> wait for the pandemic to come to an end, even though the sponsor put the study on hold. So they, it, it, they put the study on hold to protect the patients. So they were contacting the sponsor and asking if they could please start the study back up so that their children could get treatment. Yeah, I understand. I understand. So do you think that in general, in the rare disease niche, uh, patients and, and, and studies in general have an advantage in terms of adopting these solutions uh, that you just described, like the home care, the wearable solutions, since I know that we have been using them in a lot of trials even before the pandemic hit. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we we find that the rare disease sponsors are much more open to telemedicine, you know, any kind of workaround that would keep their studies going. And because this population is also very desperate for these trials and these new treatments, you know, they are open to having you know, wearable technologies on their kids, for example, for 24 hours if needed. They're open to having somebody come into their home um, and they build relationships with these home healthcare providers, for example. So I definitely um, think that the rare disease space is much more adaptable towards decentralized trial efforts. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think very often as well is that the patient numbers are generally lower in these clinical trials. So adopting creative solutions like that is a little bit more um, doable than in a very high number of clinical studies. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I would think it's, it's just more accepted. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the evidence that you're trying to collect, like world, real world evidence is actually more adaptable towards wearable technologies or you know, having a home healthcare provider come in and do an EEG, for example. So we're seeing this great adaptation in the rare disease space, and it's even going further. They're they're looking beyond what they're currently doing and trying to get you know more and more trials to use utilize these services. Regarding the small patient numbers, um, that's a really good point, Tice. You know, I. Every patient is so important and all the data is so important, especially during the pandemic. One of the things that we're really worried about is if assessments cannot be done during the pandemic, but the trial continues, how will that data be analyzed, you know, if there's missing fields? So these are also some considerations that we will look into maybe um, on further discussions. But the small number and every patient being so important is just another reason why we want to lessen the patient burden using decentralized services. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I see that. Uh, and, and do you think that um, these 
these wearable solutions, for instance, that that come of use in 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 times of of of, of this pandemic, can also help in the future with uh, helping the sponsors identifying new endpoints for for their studies. If you're talking about, for instance, um, neuromuscular indications, etc. I really do, and I think what we're seeing with some of our sponsors is that if they haven't started their trial, they're taking a pause to look at should we consider a different clinical endpoint and one that could be captured either through home healthcare or through a wearable technology, as you mentioned. And, you know, one of the challenges with wearables was finding validated wearables for clinical trials. And what I'm seeing is companies coming forward and offering platforms to analyze all of the trillions of data points you get from wearable technologies, but also offering validated solutions with, you know, uh, technologies they've worked with in the past. So for example, you might have a platform that is device agnostic, so they can work with any wearable technology and they're actually doing the validation for the sponsors and helping them identify wearables that could help them, you know, that help them with their clinical endpoint, or maybe even identify some areas they haven't thought of for their clinical endpoint. Yeah. So that they work closely together. Exactly. And you mentioned, you know, neurological, that's definitely an area that's well captured um, through wearable technologies, um, such as, you know, a six minute walk, for example, we met with a company yesterday where instead of doing these six minute walks, which can be walk tests, which can be very challenging for different patient populations, they actually record data every 24 hours and compare that to the previous day. So we're not asking patients to do anything special. They're just looking at how they're moving through their day and doing comparisons that way. Um, so that's that's helpful too. And I, I do think that the pandemic offers a silver lining in this area, just like the adaption of EDC took over 10 years in our industry to really take a stronghold. Uh, I think that companies will start thinking forward not just to another pandemic, but how can we lessen the patient burden and collect our data in real time and instead of you know, having them come into clinic and answer questions and take assessments. So I do think there's a future there. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. And, and maybe the future is sped up by, by, the, uh, by, by the current climate, however horrible it is. Uh, it, it, it is speeding up certain... Uh, adoption of of technologies and and uh, and also uh, other decentralized solutions uh, like like uh, remote visits and and virtual consultations, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because you know if you what has to happen for the adoption of decentralized trials is a cost analysis. So so just like EDC, you know what's the the savings if you're not using paper and you're moving to an electronic system and you know, we knew then it was going to change monitoring, which it did. So you could monitor through the EDC system. And the same thing is happening with remote monitoring. We'll be looking at what the cost savings are to these clients. It's not that we'll be getting rid of monitoring, which is such a key focus for ensuring you have data integrity, but it's about changing the methodology of collecting that data and cleaning that data. Additionally, we have to think about the reduction of emissions. We're not flying people everywhere to collect this data, um, I would say, though, it won't uh, replace an on-site visit. Uh, you'll still need to go on-site to ensure things are going smoothly and to look at, you know, the functionality of the clinic and safety and all kinds of different things. But it will 
help with reducing the travel costs and as we usher in this technology, even a, a reduction of emissions. Yeah. So in general, did, did we see a, across the board in, in all of our studies in, in different rare indications, because I know they range from, from ultra rare indications up to the more common, but still rare uh, indications. So did we see in, 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 in overall uh, a decrease in interest to participate in, in, in rare disease clinical trials or the reluctance to go to the clinic if, if that should be needed? So I, I wouldn't say we've seen a decrease. What's interesting to me is ultra-rare, we really didn't see a change in how the trials run because if you think about ultra-rare, these are fairly sick children, for example, and so they already have home health care set up. They have travel assistance uh, that's already in place. Same with even remote monitoring, you know, that's all there. In the not as rare trials, um, there is a shift uh, because they are changing to add that home health care. So it's a paradigm shift for those trials. And even in non-rare trials, like oncology, for example, we did see the addition of different decentralized services. As far as participation, I haven't seen a lack of participation or a reluctance. I think what we're seeing is an adoption of PPE by the sites, a standard of care has changed to accommodate COVID-19. So people are protected, but we still see patients going into their visits if possible. Some of the larger institutions did close and we did an assessment across the world for all of our clinical trials. And we watch every single institution. We talk to them weekly to see what are their new practices, what's happening, what's the new protocol for seeing patients, do they need to be seen at home or can we bring them in? So I see the industry holding hands and working together. It's been a real delight to see. And I do think that many institutions who were very reluctant to provide EHR or EMR access to records over the course of the pandemic have eased that restriction and are now allowing CRAs to monitor from home in a firewalled environment to protect PHI, but they are allowing that access. So we're really seeing the industry come together. That, that's great. And I think that we discussed like the, the patient perspective a bit. Uh, how, how does it feel for patients? Uh, how, how do sponsors see it? How, do we, how are we involved? Do you, do you think that, that sites are also engaged enough to uh, accommodate these kinds of solutions? You know, it's interesting. I do. And I think more and more sites really from the commercial side of things had started to allow telemedicine visits. I mean, I had one for the flu last year. So we were already seeing some of them adopt those practices, but they hadn't been adopted in clinical trials. So I do think sites that were really reluctant to, you know, open the EMR access, as I mentioned earlier, are starting to do so not only just from that per patient perspective, but they also need to have a viable way to continue these clinical trials. It is an income source for them. And not that they're just focused on money, they're not, but you know, you have to keep afloat. We don't want places going out of business because it's critical that these rare patients are seen. So I do think that they're adapting along with sponsors, along with CROs to make sure that these trials can complete during COVID-19. Yeah. And I see in general, we've seen that 
sites, uh, especially engaged in the rare disease niche, are so committed to help their patient population that they're they're willing and 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 doing everything they can probably to to accommodate them as well. Oh, it's been incredible. I mean, like I mentioned earlier on, we have investigators who, even without a push from the sponsors, are calling the sponsors and saying, I need to get out to see this patient. I can do the assessment so that we have that continuity between raters. Do you mind if I do that? And so they're really taking this so seriously and they're so concerned about these patients. And especially if they're doing well in these trials and they've seen the positive change, you know, they want to ensure that that patient is still getting treatment, is still being assessed, and it's, it's critical that their safety is assessed. So the commitment we've seen from the sites in these rare disease trials and others has just been astounding. So, so, so looking a bit more forward, what, what aspects of, of the decentralized trial services do you think will remain even after the pandemic? You know, I think not only will we see home health care remain, I think the services that they provide will expand. Um, I think that we'll see a cost reduction in some of these services. If you think back to the adoption of EDC, it was very expensive in the beginning. And then, they, or even like genomic testing was outrageously expensive 20 years ago and almost non-existent. And now, you know, you can get whole genome sequencing for, you know, $15,000 per person. So we'll expect to see that same trend in things like informed consent that's electronically captured. Uh, also, we'll have direct to um, patient IP shipments, which is very important for clinical trials. And, and we've been doing this in the ultra rare space for quite some time, but I think you'll see more companies adapt to that. Um, and where I really think the growth will be is in the wearable space. And I think that clients will start thinking about primary and secondary endpoints that can be captured with real-time data. So I think that along with telemedicine, where the investigator can see the patient, speak with the parents, also look at data on their tablet that is provided by the wearable so they can see how well they've been sleeping, you know, what their heart rate has been, their respiratory rate, all at the touch of their fingertips in the patient's uh, home is going to be something that will stay and I think we'll hear from new companies and new technologies we haven't even thought of yet. Um, again, that would be the silver lining of COVID-19. Yeah, I agree. And I can, only, I can also see that uh, the, the patients should be centric in, in, in clinical studies so that with adding more technology, we can probably be able to give something back to the patients because uh, uh, learning how you slept overnight is something that might be very interesting to a sponsor as data point, but it could be also something that we provide back to the client, talking about patient centricity and 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 handing back something of the time that they invested in this invested in this in this studies, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you bring up a good point. Um, working with the patient foundations, if that's done from the beginning, and finding out what these parents really need. Um, in regard to treatments for their children. So for example, if you have a disease state like Rett syndrome or a, another 
ADCY5 comes to mind because they don't have good sleep. They have rigidity. And so they are up a lot. Parents are getting up 20 times a night to check on their child or, or see how they're doing and if they're sleeping. And if you can find a way to record that so that you can see a reduction in the amount of wakings during the evening, not only are you showing a benefit to the child with that particular treatment, but you're also really seeing what's important to those parents and what is going to be effective to show the FDA, look, we were able to, or the EMA or any other agency to show them this is the true benefit, not just that we lowered some biomarker, for example, but that we caused a real world change that benefits the parents, the child. So that's, that's going to be very important. Yeah, I see that. And and I think the, ch- the change in, 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 in those uh, trials and, and for those actual patients who are part of those trials are sometimes in the little things, right? Having a bit better sleep, being able to to move your hand uh, better, etc. So, so those things would be um, easier to to prove when talking about uh, adding a wearable or uh, or 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 a device to your study. Right. I think it just makes things more objective. I mean, we see this in an ultra rare trial that we're running now um, in a pediatric population that's very sick, where you know, a mom will call the sponsor and say, you know, my child has not been able to go to school for five years and they are now at school because they're off of steroids, for example. Um, and they're able to attend, they're able to walk, they've lost so much weight because they're not on steroids anymore. So you could take any of these different endpoints. And if you add a wearable technology, not only will you be looking at the things that you expect to see, but you might find some secondary benefit um, through some of the technology that's collected or through the data points. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why we're in this space, right? To get these kinds of these kinds of feedbacks from from parents or from from patients themselves. That that's why we're in this in space to be able to help them hands on. Absolutely. I mean, I have a child with a rare disorder, and you become such an advocate for your child because. You know, it's there's no clear road path for diagnostics during a rare journey. And so it's more of an odyssey and it's becoming a bit better now. I think a lot of physicians are more attuned to, you know, looking for that zebra and when they hear hooves and not just the horse. I think the rare disease uses that zebra as their symbol, right, to show Mm -hmm. that they're different, but they're still the same in some ways. But I think you're right. I mean, we are in this space to make every child or every rare disease patient have a treatment and there's 7,000 or more different rare diseases. So we have a lot of work to do, but I think we're all really focused on lessening the patient burden, finding out what we need to solve for in these treatments. So it's not just, like I said, a reduction in a biomarker or an increase in a biomarker. It's really looking at how does that benefit the patient? Are they sleeping better? Can they get back to school you know, what is it that, that we're able to achieve for these patients? I think we'd like to have a treatment for all of them. We do. We do. Yeah. So just to, to end it off, I, I, was, I was wondering, because we discussed a lot of, of these um, decentralized solutions that we adopted uh, actually a while back, but in, in, the, in, in the COVID pandemic, it, it, it sped up as we discussed. Um, so talking about wearables, uh, IP shipments, home care, 
virtual consultations, all those items. And I was just wondering, because we are running studies in both US and in the EU, do you see a huge difference for these kinds of solutions between uh, Europe and US? So one of the biggest differences we see um, is related to GDPR and being able to do remote source document verification. So there were some allowances made by the EMA during the pandemic, but they do plan to end those. Um, and that's in regard to looking at data online. Um, there's a very large concern about PHI. So that's the one area where I see the biggest difference. I mean, in the EU, you can still have home healthcare, as you know, Tice. I mean, there are some differences, yeah. but <clears throat> we're able to provide that. We can do patient travel and reimbursement for, for the different families, but doing remote monitoring is still an area that the EMA does not hold a lot of comfort. Yeah, I know. And and, and it's a... It's, uh, um... One of the hurdles is also having uh, a, a digital patient dossier available um, for for all European countries. I think that's that's pretty far away from from achieving, and I think the US is is, is a bit further in that uh, in that regard. So I think that's one of the advantages that the US has over the EU when talking about decentralized solutions, right? Yes, I think so. Um, However, I have faith that there will be some changes and some adaptations as we move forward. Um, I, I do think the roles will still be different for the monitors in each of these different um, continents, but I, I do look forward to the day when we could all come up with a solution for remote source doc verification. So yes, I think I think that was that was it uh, for me. I, I just wanted to to thank you for for uh, your enlightening. Um, uh, talk and and uh, also to mention that we should continue to do why we're in this space and that's lowering patient burden and getting treatments to the to the markets for these rare disease populations. I couldn't agree more and and thanks for having me. Okay, that's it, Christy. Thank you, Tice.